Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Great to see everybody this morning. Who's ready to get into the Word? Shout amen today. Amen. We're ready to rock and roll this morning. Take your Bible and be finding Colossians and the third chapter. And as you're finding them here in the house uh, this morning, that passage of Scripture, let me say welcome to our brothers and sisters over at the Spanish Trail Campus. Guys, we love you all. Appreciate everybody being in the house there this morning, and a special welcome to those of you that are with us, wherever you may be, uh, visiting with us on Facebook Live or on our church's website this morning. We welcome you. It's always a great thing when God's people gather together to worship, to sing, to praise, to make melody in their uh, hearts and with their voices, and then to dig into the Word of God this morning, and we're in the midst of a wonderful study in one of the most important letters of the Bible, and that is Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And we've been several weeks and will be through the end of this year studying this magnificent letter about the person and work of Jesus Christ and how Jesus in a person's life changes everything. Colossians chapter 3, we'll begin reading in just a moment in verse number 5. It will come as a surprise, I don't think, uh, to... um, Uh, anybody in the house this morning, that we here in the United States are a nation of stockpilers. Are there any stockpilers, pack rats, hoarders in the room today? I mean, you know it's true when you got a cable television series called Hoarders. They're just some people don't know how to throw anything away. I'm told that the rule of thumb is if you haven't touched it, used it, read it, in a year, you probably ought to throw it out. Amen. I didn't hear many amens. You don't buy into that, obviously. Neither do most of your neighbors, for that matter. Uh, Last Sunday, for example, I used a visual illustration with a bunch of Tupperware boxes. Were you all here for that? One that fit right. I had four of them up here. And when church was over, after the 11 o'clock service, uh, I was greeting people right down here. My wife came up. Judy came up. And her first words to me were not, honey, (laughs) what a great message today. I just love you. I'm so thankful for how the Lord is using you. First thing, well, what'd you do with those boxes? (laughs) And I said, well, you know, right right over there. Okay, I don't want those to get away. And I said, now why would she do that? Because we got stuff. We got more stuff that she needs somewhere to pack it and lift it and shelve it and, and store it. But you know, uh, there comes a time when you just need to get rid of a few things in life. And as we continue in our study of Colossians, uh, we come to grips today to a little bit of that. As we begin in earnest, kind of the downhill slide of our study, uh, that deals with the practical side of the Christian life. I think I communicated for those of you that were here last week that Paul has this typical approach where he deals first in most of his letters with the deep things of theology, things that we need to know and things that we need to believe so that we can walk in harmony with God. But then after having spent a bit of time doing that, his normal and customary approach is to take a turn and begin to deal with the practical application of that theology. In other words, what are we supposed to do with the things that we know and believe about God and our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's now in that practical side of Colossians that we come 
once again this morning as we are reminded that Christianity isn't just about knowing the right things, it's also about living out the right things. You remember the key that we talked about last Sunday as Paul made this turn for the first time was his command that he gives to the Colossians and by extension to all of us, one command delivered in two different phrases where he tells us and challenges us to set our minds on things where? Set your minds on things above, and then he tells us more aggressively, seek the things that are above. Set your minds in order that you may aggressively seek, not the things on earth, but things that are above, the heavenly side uh, of life. And today, we're going to learn, as we continue that thought process, that seeking the things that are above sometimes means bidding good riddance to some things that have no more place in your life. There are just some things about our old life, our life before the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ought not keep around anymore. We ought not touch them. We will not use them. We ought not have anything to do with them. We ought simply to be rid of them. Let's uh, turn our attention to Colossians chapter 3 now. And beginning in verse 5, let's see what Paul has to say about that. Y'all ready to read? Amen. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all, and Christ is in all. Father, we thank you for the power of your word today, and we rely on it. We need to know your word that we might live your word and live in accordance with obedient faith as we walk together with the Lord. And so may your spirit teach us today truth in order that indeed we might not just know it, but so that we might actively live it in a way that influences others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in our risen Savior's name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Now, this morning, uh, Paul is developing a theme, actually continuing to develop a theme in this letter that he has indicated really for the last several paragraphs, and that is this theme that salvation always means transformation. You don't just get saved and have nothing change in your life. I was having a conversation with one of our members just before worship this morning, and he said, I've been reading an article about a subject called radical grace. And I said, well, grace is indeed a radical thing. And he wanted to know if I'd heard of radical grace. 
And I said, well, I know about God's radical grace. He said, no, there's really kind of a thing going on. And it basically is an extreme view of grace that has adopted this concept that once you're saved, it doesn't really matter how you live because God's forgiven you. Now, we call that, in my old school way of thinking, a license to sin. But grace is not a license to sin. I want to say that again. Grace is not a license to sin. See, if that kind of concept were true, we need to take our little pen knives and excise this passage of Scripture that we read and rip it right out of the Bible. Because if there's any one takeaway from this passage that we just read, it's that right theology always results in a change of living. There are some things, Paul says, that need to be put to death in a believer's life. And there are some things that need to be put away from a believer's life. Salvation means transformation. Paul has made that clear that there's a part of us that dies once we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Our old life before Christ is now dead and buried. We have died with Christ. We've been crucified with Christ. We have been buried with Christ. Nevertheless, we live. So because that old life has passed away, now we have the resurrection. We've been made alive with Christ. We've been raised up with Christ. Old things pass away. Behold, all things have what? Become new. And new people, get this down and mark it, new people require a new look. That's Paul's point in this passage of Scripture. And the next one that will come next Sunday as we open up the Bible then. And it's that new look that Paul begins to address here in Colossians chapter 3. This morning, in the few minutes we have remaining, I want to make four observations from this text, two of them uh, dealing with matters of conduct, and the other two dealing with the rationale with respect to the change in conduct. These are two things we need to do, and here's two reasons why we need to do them. First thing Paul tells us is that believers need a transformed understanding, first of all, of sex. Now, anytime I make a statement like that, everybody sets up straight. I got everybody's attention. Oh, preacher's going to talk about sex this morning. You're darn too dumb going to talk about sex because Paul has a lot to say about it here beginning in verse 5. Watch how it begins. Seeking the things that are above means, first of all, verse 5, you have to put to death what is earthly in you. Now that phrase put to death, very strong concept, just means to kill it. There's some things in your life, even though <clears throat> you have in a sense spiritually died to your old way of life, there's still some stuff lingering around that you, you yourself have to deal aggressively with. And Paul says, so aggressively, you got to stick a knife in it. There's some things that you have to work constantly to kill, namely those old fleshly desires that our enemy, the devil, will appeal to. See, the, the problem that we have to face is that when we're saved, the sin nature doesn't completely go away. And if that were true, then the devil wouldn't have anything with which to tempt you. Isn't that right? How many of you have been tempted, even this morning, to do something or think something that you shouldn't? Well, that's the devil appealing to the old flesh in you. It still hangs around as we live with broken bodies, broken minds, redeemed and transformed, yes, but still broken this side of heaven, and as we continue to live in a world that's fallen and, by definition, still broken itself. We have been, through salvation and the indwelling Christ, perfected in terms of our standing before God, and it's that perfect character of Christ living in us 
that gives us standing and acceptability before and in the presence of a holy God. But even though we've been perfected spiritually because of our union with Christ, we're still not perfect people. Any perfect people in the house this morning? Nobody's perfect. We still deal with brokenness every day. And this is why, for example, the Apostle Paul will make a statement to the Philippians like this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. See, if you were perfect this side of heaven, that statement is unnecessary in the Bible. No, there's still things that we have to confront about our old way of life that still kind of hangs around. There's still things that we have to deal aggressively with. We have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Knowing that we're not working all that stuff out alone, God works in us both to will and to accomplish his good purpose and pleasure. But we have to be very diligent. We have to be very intentional because as you well know from your own experience, right decisions don't always happen automatically. And if you take your hand off the spiritual throttle at any given point in life, you'll have this tendency to default back to darkness. You'll have a tendency to regress in your Christian walk and fall right back into the traffic patterns of the world and the traffic patterns of your old life. And that's why Paul says, put to death those things that are earthly in you. You have to put those things to death every day in order to seek the things that are above. And then having made this general statement, put these things to death, he tells us what some of the things are. Here in verse 5, he's going to list five things particularly And surprise, surprise, every one of them has something to do with sex. Does that surprise anybody in the house this morning? Because we deal with that stuff every day, front and center. Here's what he says. Put these things to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, that kind of a list, and others like them, there's another one in this passage, And Paul has them several places throughout his letters. There's one in Romans, there's one in 1 Corinthians, there's one in Galatians, there's one in Ephesians. They're all over his writings. They're called vice lists, where he lists these particular strains of conduct that mark the traffic patterns and the decision patterns of the world, but have no business anymore in the life of a redeemed, righteous-sized follower of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that just about every time he has one of these vice lists in the Bible, he always starts with the things having to do with sexual sin. Now, it's no surprise because if you've done any biblical background work at all, you know that that culture in the first century was a sex-saturated culture. But it should not surprise anybody here today that so is ours Billboards, magazines, television programs, internet, man, things associated with sex are in our face all the time. In fact, you could make an argument that our culture is far worse, as as degrading as that first century culture was. You could make an argument that ours is even far more challenging because of technology, right? Because you you carry sexual illicitness in your pocket all the time. I mean, it's just easy access. And our children are carrying these things around anymore. And so we live in a sex-saturated culture, and sexual temptation is used by the enemy in front of us literally every moment of every day of our life. The first four items that he lists here are all closely related. 
The first, sexual immorality, translates one word in the Greek New Testament, pornia, from which we get our English word what? Pornography, that's where it comes from. It's a general term. It's a broad-based term that encompasses just about every kind of sexual activity outside of the sexual union between a husband and a wife. It includes things like uh, having sex before marriage, premarital sex, having sex with someone to whom you're not married, adulterous sex, sex between two people of the same biological gender. That's outside of the bounds of God's holiness when it comes to sexual activity. And by the way, let me add too this morning, it's part of the problem too why cohabitating before marriage is a bad deal. It's inappropriate for God's new people to live like the rest of the world. I'm often asked about that. All of these things that I just mentioned are beyond the pale of acceptable, righteous behavior that's pleasing to God. The next three concepts take it even broader beyond the physical act itself to the sins of the mind. They have different shades of meaning, impurity, passion, evil desire. They don't all mean the same thing, but they're very closely connected. They are cousins, and all of them include the corruption of the mind and the desires of the heart. And by the way, let me just say, this is one reason why sexual sin can go beyond the physical act itself, right? I'm often, speaking of the cohabitation issue, this comes up all the time. And I'm often asked, well, here's the thing. Is it okay if we live under the same roof just in different parts of the house? Now, we won't touch one another, and we won't go there. We won't get physical with one another. But would that be acceptable to God? Wait for it. No. It's not acceptable to God. And you know why? First of all, I've never known anybody know how to do that staying at different ends of the house. Like you're gonna draw a white line down the house and say, I'm gonna stay on one side of it. That might last a day and a half. So all of us know that that's not likely gonna last any length of time whatsoever. And even if it were possible to do it, you know what? You can't say that you wouldn't want to do it or that you would never be enticed to do it. And that's the problem. Because sexual sin is not just physical. It can be a sin of the mind as well as of the heart. Man, I'm telling you, all you're doing is putting yourself in an arena that the devil can use as a playground. An arena that encourages sin, not only of the body but of the mind. Did Jesus not say whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already what? Committed adultery in their heart. Did Jesus not say, if your right eye causes you to sin, what? And here's the thing. That's not encouraging self-mutilation. That's hyperbolic speech, exaggerated speech to drive home a point. And what is the point? You have to deal aggressively to control sinful impulses in your life. Because if you don't deal decisively with sin, the devil will have a playground with your life. You have to resist the devil in order for the devil to flee from you. And that's why sometimes you have to pluck out an eye or cut off a hand. And that means going to the extreme to make sure 
that the holy character that now resides in me as a child of God because of Christ in me, who is the hope of glory, is lived consistently outside. I don't want anything that I do to damage my testimony about Jesus. And some of these things that we've talked about this morning, you just let those get out, you won't have a testimony about Jesus. You won't have a testimony. There's anything different about your life than than that's different from the life of your lost friend or your lost family member or your lost neighbor. So this is part, by the way, this is part and parcel of why the fifth thing on the list is covetousness. That doesn't seem to be uh, related to the first four. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. We see the connection between those four. And then Paul says, and covetousness, which at first glance seems to be a little out of place, even though we all know what that is. You know what it means to covet something, don't you? It means to fervently desire it, to want it. You can't have it, but it becomes a consuming passion of your life, and it takes the focus off of the Lord in your life down to earthly things. Listen, when you covet, you're not seeking the things that are above. You're seeking the things that are where? Below. And that's why covetousness is a problem. Covetousness was the sin that Paul had a real problem with in his own life, Romans chapter 7. Because he might be able to strut around, and he basically makes this as a confession. I might be able to walk around saying, you know what, I've never touched another woman. I've never not honored my father and my mother. I've always tried to put God first, never stolen anything in my life, never killed another man overtly. He might be able to walk around and say, I haven't done any of that stuff. I'm in great shape with God. But then he got convicted because he realized he could never say that he'd never wanted to do any of those things. And he got busted by command number 10. Thou shalt not covet. See, it went straight to the heart. That's God's way of saying how you think in your mind and heart matters just as much to me as what you do with your hands and feet and with your life. And when it comes to covetousness, here's the thing. You know why it's included in this list? Because most of what people covet today is somebody else's body. We desire the sexual stuff in life. And covetous can include a man or a woman to whom you're not married. That's why Paul has it right there. Now, if you're married to one another, you're in a union. If you're married to one another, you belong to one another. Turn to your husband or wife say, you belong to me, baby. They do. You belong to one another. But that's not true when it comes to somebody to whom you're not married. That person doesn't belong to you. And that's why to have a sexual relationship with them is wrong because they're not yours. And if the mental fixation, this evil desire that Paul talks about, if that extends to the physical, then not only have you coveted, which he says makes you an idolater, so there's covetousness, there's idolatry, not only have you committed sexual immorality physically, you've fourthly taken something that doesn't belong to you That makes you a thief. So whenever you sleep with a person to whom you're not married, you've broken four of God's most important Ten Commandments with that one action. And that's what makes it a problem. 1 Corinthians 6, now maybe we can understand why it says what it does. Flee 
from sexual immorality. That means when it comes to sexual sin, God says, I'm giving you permission to be a coward. Get away from it. Run from it. Tuck tail and scoot. Flee sexual immorality. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a what? Say it out loud. A temple. Temple of whom? A temple of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is Christ in you which is the hope of glory. Your body is the residence of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, which is why what we do with our bodies matters to God. So would you not agree that believers, we as believers, now he's not talking to the world here, he's talking to the church, would you not agree that we in the church need a transformed understanding of sex? Amen. Secondly, we need a transformed understanding of speech. Book of verse 7. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. First he says put to death. Now he says put away. Toss it. Be rid of it. And here's what you need to toss. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now again, that's a list of five. Paul Paul deals with these listings in exactly the same way. He makes a general statement followed by a list of five both times. And here, the statements all have something to do with sins of the heart that lead to sins of the mouth. Y'all nobody, uh, know anybody here got a potty mouth? Know anybody got a big mouth? Yeah. So would you agree we, we have a, probably a bigger problem with our mouths than we do with the rest of our bodies? It's a lot in the Bible about how we use our tongue and how we use our mouths. The first three that he lists here, anger, wrath, or rage, and malice. We all know what anger is. And then if you're left alone to nurse your anger, that can result in rage or wrath. And then there's malice, which is kind of a conniving when anger is left to go uh, undealt with, sometimes it can lead to kind of a conniving to actually do harm to somebody with whom you're angry. Uh, all of that coming, of course, from a bitter spirit. All three of those are heart sins. And you've had a wounded spirit. And because you're not abiding in Christ and releasing all of that poison back to Christ, there's always a tendency for that stuff to come out. It's one thing to have it in your heart, but if you don't get it out to God, you will tend to get it out to other people and it will totally mess up your testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll look more like the devil than you do like Jesus. Isn't that right? Nothing can make you look more like the devil even though you claim to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ than how you use your mouth. Because that stuff sometimes just comes out. And that's the last two. See, Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth what? Speaks. Have you ever had someone say something and you just sat there thinking, where did that come from? I'll tell you where it came from. It came from their heart. All speech comes from the heart. You have a person who uses pleasant words. It comes from a heart's walking in the Spirit of God. A person uses poisonous words. It's coming from a heart that's out of step with God, focused on earthly things as opposed to things above. And that's what Paul means when he uses terms like slander and obscene talk. These are things like character assassination. 
usually never to the person's face, but always to somebody else about the person. Unholy behavior, inappropriate for God's holy people. Character assassination, abusive speech, filthy language. We ought not talk like the rest of the world. Man, we got a language problem in this country and around the world as well. People can't control their mouth. Let me tell you, if you can't control your mouth, you are an out-of-control life. The Bible says the love of Christ constrains us. So if you're walking in the Spirit of God or what Jesus called abiding, you can control your mouth. I had a family member tell me, I've been talking like this since I was 15 years old. I guess I'll just never get victory. Well, how about walking with Jesus? No, you can't, but yes, you can. Amen. You can't get control of it, but Christ in you can. You just stay tight with Jesus every day of your life, every moment. And God can control your mouth and control your life. Man, this is especially true in the age of social media. People capture out-of-control people and then put a video out there for the whole world to see it. And stuff that happens on airplanes is the craziest stuff that you'll ever see. There are more people getting hauled off of airplanes. You don't want to lose your temper on an airplane because you're going to jail. But people capture that stuff, and then they post it. And all it takes is just random scrolling down your telephone or on your computer to see that our country and our culture is made up of a bunch of angry birds that just are not walking in the spirit of God. And let me just say, y'all still with me? Say amen. I got everybody's attention today. I'll keep going a couple of minutes. Everybody's listening today. It's interesting to me that Paul is writing these things to Christian people. He's writing this to the church. Man, we oftentimes get saved and think, man, somehow we're just relieved of every negative bent and every hurtful emotion. But let me just tell you, some of the harshest things I've ever had said to me personally have not come from lost people on the street. They've come from inside the house of God, from people who claim to wear Jesus on their chest. Over the last 30 years, the harshest things ever have come from God's people. And the harshest letter I've ever received was from another pastor. I showed it to a buddy of mine. I said, how am I supposed to respond to this? He said, just send it back to him and said, I accept your apology. I didn't do that. <laughs> I thought it was a great comeback. I've kept it just as a reminder of what not to do. Man, I watch, if you watch Thursday night football between the Steelers and the Browns, one of the Browns players ripped a helmet off the opposing quarterback and swung it at his bare head. I've been watching NFL for a long time. I had never seen anything like that before. It's crazy stuff. And we might expect that from the culture, but we ought not expect it among the people of God. Because the Bible says there are marks of a spirit-filled life. We'll get into more of that next Sunday. These are things we ought to get rid of, but Paul's going to say there's some things you need to put on, and we'll talk more about that later, but some of those things are the fruit of the Spirit, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That's what's supposed to mark the holy people of God. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And here's the thing, that can only be cultivated the closer you walk with the Lord. And this is why you got to keep your hand on the throttle or your foot on the throttle, whichever the case might be. you got to keep the throttle up. 
And the more you're in tight communion with Christ, the more you'll be able to just let stuff go. You say, well, I just, I just can't let it go. Get close to Jesus. Man, the model of the Jesus that I see going to the cross is that Jesus didn't even open his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, he remained silent and opened not his mouth. So you can't do that, but Christ in you can do that. So you better be walking with the Lord if you want to look like the Lord. And adding to that in verse 9, Paul says, do not lie to one another. Now, that's a separate sentence. He doesn't include that with the five, and he separates it out, I think, for a reason, because this is the one we tend to have problems with more than any of the others. Deception is just the core part of our fallen nature, because the Bible says that our adversary, the devil, is a what? A liar and the father of lies, right? And so this is kind of at the heart of who we are as unregenerate, unredeemed people before we meet the Lord. And if you're not careful, this can become a default response whenever you've done something wrong or you've let something slip or you've overlooked something important. You just will misrepresent the truth when you have to give an account for it. Deceptive speech is not Christ-like, it's devil-like. He's the liar and he's the father of lies. And that's in part why the Bible says lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. So regardless of what it is, whether it's these sins of the mouth or the sins of the body, the operative phrase here uh, that's bound up in verse 9 is stop it. Stop it. I mean, God is just saying there are certain things you just got to stop doing. And no, you can't do it on your own, but you can do it by walking tightly with the Lord and relying on the presence of the Son of God who lives within the life of every person that's responded to him in faith. You are a new creature in Christ and new people need a new look. So there's certain things that you need to get rid of. Now, I gotta end quickly. There are a couple of reasons why. And this takes us to the third and fourth observation. We need a transformed understanding of accountability. Accountability. We are accountable to God with how we use our lives. This is why we need to take these ethical matters seriously. Paul says in verse 6, we need to take it seriously because on account of these things, what's coming? Say it out loud. The, the wrath of God is coming. Now, people don't like to consider the wrath of God. That's a negative thing in the minds of most people because they don't like an angry God. They want a syrupy, sweet, loving God. And God is loving and God is gracious and God is tender and merciful. God is love and God is holy and God is all of those things. But a part of the attributes of God that we have to consider is the wrath of God because it's all over the Bible. It's just as much a part of God as his holiness and his love even though we may not like it. Because you may be sitting there thinking, well, wait a minute, you just told us that we're not supposed to live angry lives. And why does God get an out here? Well, he doesn't, and this is a totally different kind of anger. This is not emotional anger as we know it. It's not an anger that's based on sin. It's not a knee-jerk reaction to something that God causes to lose or that God sees in people that causes him to lose his temper. That's not the way God reacts. God really is not a reactive God. God knows everything. And listen, if you know everything, you don't have to react to anything because nothing ever comes as a surprise to you. So this is totally different. This is a settled 
part of the nature of God. The wrath of God is just that part of God that stands in opposition to everything that's unholy. God is love, but God is also holy, and his holiness requires him to deal decisively with sin. He can't fellowship with it. He has to judge it. And that's the tangible demonstration of the wrath of God. The tangible, obvious demonstration of the wrath of God is judgment. And can I say this morning, for all of us, lost or saved people, there will be a time of judgment when Christ comes again. There will be a judgment day. Now, here's the good news for those of you. You know Jesus, say amen if you've been saved. Amen. Your judgment for sin, the sinful condition of your life, has already been taken care of. God has already exercised wrath against your sin, but he did it in the dying Christ on the cross. Jesus, when he died, took the wrath of God for those who would respond to him in faith. So you'll never experience the full brunt of the wrath of God because Jesus took the bullet for you. That's a good place for an amen. Amen. He's taken your wrath on himself so that you could receive, instead of wrath, forgiveness and divine acceptance. That's a good trade-off. But God's full wrath is coming on those who reject Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, at the end of time, you will bear the full brunt of the wrath of God because your life is still unholy. You've never been made righteous to fellowship for eternity with God. But even with that, for believers, there still will come a time of judgment. So don't think that how you live doesn't matter because there is still coming a judgment day. For believers, we're still accountable for how we live. We're still stewards for our life. And that's what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 5 when he reminds us that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, he's talking to the church, the Corinthian believers. We, all of we who walk with Jesus, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the what? In the body, whether good or evil. So saved people can still do evil things. And there will be an accounting for that, which is why you want to live holy. And that's why what you do with your mind and what you do with your body matters to God, and it ought to matter to you, because there will be an accounting, and there may be some form of loss in the eternal kingdom. So we need a transformed understanding of accountability in order to live holy and acceptably before God. But then, fourthly, believers need a transformed understanding not only of accountability but of identity. We need to be reminded. This kind of brings us full circle back to where we started because we need a clear understanding of who we now are in Christ. Our lives are now hidden with Christ in God, radically delivered, radically changed. Look at verse 7. In these things, In these activities, you too once walked when you were living in them before Christ. And then what's the next two words? Say them out loud, please. Say it again. But now, but now, in Christ, you must put them all away. Verse 9, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self 
which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is an important before and after picture. These kinds of behavioral identifying marks, that's the way your neighbors live. That's the way you used to live before you met the Lord, and it's the way your neighbors still lived if they're lost. But that was then. This is now. And now things are different. And so Paul says there's some things you need to put off and some things you need to put on. It's the language of ripping clothing off of your body that's soiled and dirty or out of style or out of date, just getting that, those old garments off, putting them off, stripping them off, and then putting on refers to putting on new clothing, clean clothing, acceptable clothing to God. Take these garments off and put these garments on. And those new garments, of course, which we'll talk more about next week, are the garments of the character of Jesus Christ, which we would call the fruit of the Spirit. The best commentary on this concept is what Paul says in the sixth chapter of Romans. Notice Romans 6 and verse 11. Consider yourselves what? Say it out loud. Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions... Verse 13, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members, every individual part of your body and mind, present not only yourself but each and every one of your body parts and organs and everything else. Present your members to God as instruments of what? Of righteousness. Now once again, Make no mistake, you can't do this on your own. It's impossible to live this way apart from Christ in you, the hope of glory. But with Christ in you, you have the power. You can do it. You have the power within you to offer yourself every day, as Paul says in Romans 12, as a living sacrifice unto God. And you can allow the Spirit of God to forever help you bid good riddance to every part, every attitude, every action of your life and mind and body that no longer has an appropriate place because of who you are as a righteous follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember who you are, a new creation in Christ, and never forget it, new people always require a brand new Look, so let's walk in holiness, living in a way that pleases the risen Christ. This is his word, and let all who agree say, amen.